Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. In this special episode, I speak with Andy Flick, the executive director of the nearly 100-member strong New Democrat Coalition in the U.S. House of Representatives and a key partner of New Deal. It was fun to take a detour from our usual fair state and local governing to what's happening in Congress, including immediate issues like the debt ceiling crisis, as well as some of the longer-term priorities of the new Dems, like immigration reform, opioids, and mental health. I was also happy to hear about some of the surprising areas where Andy thinks there might be room for progress this Congress. We also talked about how Congress has evolved over the time that Andy's been there, how much happens that we don't read about in the media, and the political bug that bit Andy when he was just eight years old. I hope you enjoy. All right, Andy Flick, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you. Thanks for having me to talk to you. You know, the New Dems have been such a huge partner for New Deal leaders over the years. And I'm excited to have you share a little bit with our listeners kind of about the New Democrat Coalition and what you guys are all about. So maybe just a quick question to start. You're the executive director of New Dems. Who are the New Dems? Let's start with that question. Yeah, the New Dems are a coalition in the House of Representatives. We're a coalition of about 100 members of Congress from New York to California, span the country, span the ideological spectrum. But we are united in a belief that what is truly progressive is progress, that we've got to work on pragmatic policies, get those policies across the finish line, and really, at the end of the day, uh, get something done for the American people. I love that, first of all. Progressive is progress. I'm going to use that line. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and the thing that I just want to underscore, you just said it's a hundred members. I mean, that's almost a quarter of the house. And I sometimes feel like people are like, "Where are all the people that are trying to get stuff done?" Everybody's on those extremes. That's not true. And you have, as you said, members from across the country. Tell us. So, what does that look like when you're thinking about your priorities? Like, what are you coming together on, for example, for this Congress? Right. Yeah. When I tell people that this is my job, that I work for a coalition of moderate Democrats in the House, their first question without fail is there are moderate Democrats in the House <laughs> like all the time. hundred people. Let me re- underscore it again. It's a hundred people. Yes. Right. Nearly a quarter of the House of Representatives is made up of people like you, you know, normal, reasonable, middle of the road Democrats. So, yes, we exist. Yes, we're on TV and we're also a, a force to be reckoned with. So, Yeah, so this is going to be an exciting Congress for us. We have, to be exact, 96 members. We are in the process of standing up a whole bunch of policy task forces that focus on a whole range of issues. 
We did a survey of our members and that we recently got the results back. And the top three issues that our members want to focus on are immigration reform, trying to find a path forward for not just dreamers, but also, you know, making sure the border secure, making sure our businesses have access to the workers that they need. Number two was healthcare, substance use, and mental health. That's a huge issue, especially in the wake of the pandemic with shutdowns, both at school and at work. I think our members are hearing from their constituents that, you know, that had a real impact on the mental health of all Americans. And so we're going to dive into that this year. And the third thing was implementation, looking at all of the bills that we passed over the 117th Congress, making sure that the executive is uh, implementing those correctly, that the money's getting out to the communities who need it, and that the projects are worthwhile. So I think those will be three big focuses, but we'll touch, you know, every issue under the sun. There's a lot I want to unpack there. One is I just wanted to take your last point, which is, you know, it's something we talk a lot about at New Deal. You guys did so much work in the last Congress, mostly partisan, frankly. I mean, Democrats really delivered some bipartisan, the bipartisan structure deal, but some of it really had to carry, like the American Rescue Plan with the president's leadership. But, you know, I was in Washington a couple of weeks ago and everyone was talking about all these things as if they were in the past. And I kept thinking, like, oh my gosh, from my perspective, working with state and local electeds, like this money's just getting out, some of it. This there's so much that the American people are still going to feel about the historic investments that have been made in communities across the country, thanks to you and your colleagues. So I guess I just kind of want to underscore, we're looking forward to working with you on that. And I think it's important that people realize that's still, that's not in the past, that's happening right now in terms of the projects that are getting funded and the, and the results people are going to see. You know, maybe to take a step back, it's super helpful to know what your priorities are. And I guess I suspect that some of our listeners are bracing for a Congress that's so, you know, with the flip in the leadership and the, you know, such a close divide, you know, at a year with the Republican-led Congress, like not a lot's going to get done. Is that, how do you feel about that? What's your take on that? I mean, the big secret about Congress for those who don't work there is how much gets done behind the scenes and not just behind the scenes. I mean, it's in the public record, but it's not on the front page of the newspaper. Rarely does the Washington Post or another big outlet report on a massive, you know, bipartisan success story. There's actually a great piece, opinion piece in the Post yesterday about the work of the House Modernization Committee, which our vice chair for policy, Derek Kilmer, was the chairman of. They did remarkable work. They released 200 bipartisan recommendations on how to get the Congress to work better. And none of that was front page news, but all of it was tremendously impactful. So yes, Democrats are in the minority for the next two years and just the two years if you and I uh, have our way. But I still think there's a lot that we can get done. I mean, I'll just take two issues. One is immigration reform and one is climate change. Two of the stickiest issues that are out there. But if you look at sort of where the cards are on the table, I still think uh, it's possible for us to get something done. On immigration reform, for example, the Supreme Court is currently looking at a case related to DACA and DREAMers. And, you know, it's highly likely that the Supreme Court is going to rule that program unconstitutional in June. And so that's really a forcing function for the Congress to come together on a bipartisan basis, as we've done before, to chart a path forward to protect DREAMers and to make sure that, you know, businesses have workers that they need and that our border is secure. I think our members believe that there's a deal to be had on immigration reform and their work reaching out to Republicans and senators on both sides of the aisle and the Capitol to see if there's a path forward there. On climate, what I think is so interesting about climate is we had a Republican pollster come in a couple months ago, and he said the one issue where Republicans are totally 
out of sync with their voters is on climate change. And they said Republican voters know that the climate is changing. They know that mankind is causing it and they want government to do something about it. They also don't want their energy costs to go up. They also don't want, you know, onerous government regulations, but they want government to act. And so there's a really exciting group in the House called the Conservative Climate Solutions Caucus, and they work to build consensus among conservative Republicans on the need to act on climate. So we'll reach out to that group, see if there's common ground that we can find and see what can get done over the next two years. Well, I love that you're so optimistic, and that's awesome. And it would be, but your point's well taken, frankly, it's like, you know, it feels, and this is, we could have a whole other podcast on the media. (laughs) Why it is, like, why is it that these successes don't get reported on and how much work gets done day in and day out. That's really important work. Like you're talking about the modernization committee. That's amazing. You know, and like, you know, we just don't hear about that, right? We tend to hear about what's contentious. So I hate to ask about a contentious one, but I will anyway, because it just will be on people's minds, I think, which is the debt ceiling conversation happening right now. What is your take on where we are and where we're going to go? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a scary issue because the fate of the global economy hangs in the balance. Uh, I, guess, I guess that's why we're worried about it, right? <laughs> just to say. But, you know, I do think Congress, every time we've been faced with this choice, has acted to raise the debt ceiling. And so Kevin McCarthy has said that, you know, no one should call into question the full faith and credit of the United States and the House will act to raise the debt ceiling. The president's said that and House and Senate Democratic and Republican leaders have said the same. So everybody agrees that we must raise the debt ceiling. It's just a matter of how do we get it done. I think it'll get a lot uglier before it gets prettier. But at the end of the day, I do think we'll raise the debt ceiling and we'll avoid this this global catastrophe. I guess the other kind of current eventy type of issue I'd like to ask about was the we're talking the week after the president's State of the Union in Congress. And probably the top line takeaway was the social security (laughs) scene where everybody stood up and was like, okay, great. We're all going to be agreed to that. Do you feel like that that's what, you know, of course, this is how it's playing out in the media, but what's your take from the inside kind of about that issue and, and whether that really is something that there's some common ground on? Yeah. I mean, I thought the president was masterful during the State of the Union. It was Joe Biden in classic Joe Biden form. It was the man that everybody voted for in 2020. And I just thought he knocked it out of the park. You know, the main message from this election cycle was a rejection of extremism on both sides. People want normalcy. They want governance to work again. And Joe Biden is like the embodiment of what governance looks like. And especially when you talk about Social Security and Medicare, I mean, he was able to rally the entire chamber around this idea that Social Security and Medicare are off limits. And we all agree to raucous applause, you know, from both sides of the aisle. So whether that was planned or not, I'm not sure what it was, but either way, it was totally masterful. And our collective hats are off to the president on that one. It really was a phenomenal speech, and I totally agree with you, your assessment, your your analysis of it. It was, you know, it was showing what it looks like to govern, it felt like to me, right? You know, and seriousness, and in the context of where we're coming from, which is the election, which where people said, we don't want these shenanigans anymore, you know, I said, totally agree with that. And to that point, I guess I'm another question I wanted to ask you was just, you know, we mostly talk to state and local elected officials on this program. So it's fun to talk to somebody from Congress. Kind of, you've been working there for a while. You were working there when you were in the majority, of course. Now you're in the minority. Like, what's it like? Not, and as you said, what's your two year hiatus here in the minority? Knock on wood, thank you, trust. What's the difference in kind of trying to govern from the majority versus governing from the minority? How's it changed your day? 
Yeah. Unfortunately, most of my career in the minority. I went to got to Congress when we were in the majority. I got to see us pass the Affordable Care Act and save the economy during the Great Recession and then was in the minority for a great long stretch there. You know, I think the next two years are about two things. One is working every day to take back the House to really find the candidates that we need to run, recruit them to run, train them, train their staffs and support them every step of the way so that they can, you know, be a victorious next November. But I think our members believe that the issues that face the country are so great that we can't wait two years to make progress on them. And so let's find the common ground that we can in the meantime. I think, you know, the minority versus the majority One thing that is true is the minority is a little easier than the majority. You're sort of like not fighting with live fire. So oftentimes you're just reacting to what the Republicans do in terms of the big picture political fights on the floor. But it really allows you the the time to think thoughtfully about issues, to try to build new coalitions and put together the right people and policies to really get something done. You're being so on brand as an optimist, which I totally appreciate. So I hate that I keep asking these questions that sound pessimistic because I'm actually not a I'm not an pessimist either. But I do, to your point about how the kind of the changing nature of, of Congress and how long you've been there, it does having, you know, even though I work state and local, I've been, you know, been watching a long time. It does feel like there's been a change on the Hill about just kind of, you know, obviously we saw it at the State of the Union again about the, you know, lack of civility or whatever. Like, what's your take on, is it that different? Is it, you know, and how do you deal with it? I mean, you've got a lot of people up there saying some pretty crazy stuff. And obviously, you know, January 6th happened. I mean, you know, it's really been kind of an evolution. How does that affect you day to day? Or how does it affect the work of the coalition? Or, you know, what is it really like? Yeah, it is definitely there has been a change. I think it's one part January 6th. I think it's one part COVID. And then I think it's one part just the changing nature of our our politics. To me, the best example that I point to was we had a mask mandate in the Capitol and in the House office buildings uh, during COVID. Some of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the aisle didn't often wear their masks, which is there right? It was against the rules. But the weirdest part about it was it it put uniforms on us. If you were wearing a mask, that meant that you were a Democrat. If you weren't wearing a mask on a House office building, that meant you were a Republican, by and large. And so it just created a natural division, you know, when you're in the elevator with a friend, instead of striking up a conversation about something, you were instead angry about, you know, something that they were doing to you know, in your mind felt like it was putting your life at risk. And that really changes things. I know for the members who were there on January 6th, it was just, it's an added level of stress and that changed the work environment, uh, I think on the staff and the member level. I do think things are getting back to normal. It's hard to find Republican staff that you don't already know. There aren't a lot of opportunities to just meet people across the aisle to strike up a conversation about what your boss is interested, what your office is interested in, and see if there's like ways for us to work together. Now that we're back in person and meetings are happening and you're bumping into people, you know, it's not so odd to request a meeting with somebody to talk about working on one issue or another. So I think it's getting better, but they're for sure the tenor has sort of gone up. The fever, you know, has inched up a degree or two, and that's not good for the country. But like I said before, there's a ton of work that happens behind the scenes on a bipartisan basis every single day. And that work goes on no matter what we see on Fox News or elsewhere. Yeah, and you're not worried that whatever deals were struck 
with the new speaker to become speaker after that historic, chaotic, crazy, I'd be interested in your take on that too, you know, kind of speaker process, that that's going to be detrimental to kind of, you know, what you're able to do this time around? I think it remains to be seen. To me, the most disappointing thing of those 15 votes was that it didn't have to be that way. If you look in state, as you know better than anybody else and your listeners, states across the country have found consensus speakers. In Ohio and in Pennsylvania, they elected a consensus speaker. You know, Nebraska's got a unicameral, you know, nonpartisan body. It is possible for legislators to get in a room and for the sanest of the sane to form a majority and to govern from the center out. And so I think, you know, Kevin McCarthy chose to strike deals for this right elements of his caucus instead of coming to the center and asking, you know, for a, a consensus agenda. And so that was what was disappointing was there was a path forward for him to strike a compromise and he chose the other side. Why did he make that choice? Just out of curiosity. I mean, not like, you know, not like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah. What do you think? Why do you think he did that? It's the institution of the house, the majority rules. And so, and you, it's far easier sometimes to find, you know, cohesion and 218 votes on one side of the aisle than it is to inject the uncertainty of sort of opening that up and going across the aisle. The house, you know, is and always has been an institution of majorities. And so you're going to go to the path of least resistance. But, you know, back to the earlier conversation about the modernization committee, like one of the ideas that they have is to create a communal space that is nonpartisan because <laughs> one of those does not exist on the Hill. That isn't the cafeteria or something that's like uh, in public. And so the concept is if we can create a space where members can meet each other and socialize and talk to each other, then you'll start to build those informal bonds that allow thinking higher level deals to come about. So it's a, definitely a long-term process though. Oh, that though. I mean, it is, it's just, you know, kind of getting away from this idea that the other is, you know, somehow the enemy, right? I mean, we have common problems. We have come, we can find common solutions. I was struck, I'll move on, but I was struck over the weekend watching a couple of the governors, Republican and Democratic governors after the D, the NGA meeting in DC last week, talking about, you know, how they got together and, you know, we're just talking about solving problems and how we, and I think the governor of Utah actually said, you know, I think we've forgotten how to disagree. I'm like, I think that's exactly right. Like, we don't know how to say, I don't agree with you on that, but I can understand where you're coming from and how, you know, rather than saying, gosh, if you don't agree with me, you're clearly stupid or the enemy or whatever you're going to characterize. It's just, it's something that's just broken in that public discourse, right? You know, there's no question. And, you know, to be clear, I'm a partisan, like I want Democrats to be in the majority in the house, the Senate and to have a Democrat in the white house, because we have a track record of getting stuff done and of making life better. That doesn't mean that we can throw bipartisanship out the window once we get those majorities. And so in two years, when we're in the majority, I hope we can you know, model some behavior to open space, create space for bottom-up deals to happen from the center out and uh, to allow individual legislators to lead. No, I think that's absolutely right. I want to um, ask you kind of about your own path into public service, but before we do, I should, I was remiss in not asking you about, you have new leadership, of course, as you do every Congress in the new Democrat coalition. And I, you know, we love your new chair, who's been a partner of New Deal. So tell us a little bit about your leadership before I ask you about you. 
Yeah, thanks so much for asking. So yeah, super excited. We have a brand new chair. Her name's Annie Custer uh, from New Hampshire. We have four new vice chairs. Sharice Davids from Kansas is going to be our vice chair for member services. So she helps every single one of our members be the best version of themselves and to create you know world-class offices that are effective and responsive to their constituents. Derek Kilmer from Washington State is our vice chair for policy. So he leads all of our policy efforts, he'll stand up our task forces in a couple of weeks and really work to, as he says, put pucks in the net as we <laughs> work to get things done. Brad Schneider from Illinois is our vice chair for communication. So he makes sure that our members get their voice out to their local districts and that the American people hear that there's a, you know, moderate Democrats in Washington who are working on behalf, on their behalf. And then uh, Salud Carbajal from your neck of the woods is our vice chair for outreach. He's fabulous. And he really works on building connections to the administration, to the Senate, to other organizations like the Congressional Black Caucus, Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and really making sure that, you know, we're building friends, building coalitions and building power to get stuff done. Well, I love all five of those people, actually, and including my own congressman, as you mentioned. <laughs> but I mean... To your point about like, oh, there's no moderate, like just listening to those five names. It's like, those are people who are really effective and really problem solvers. And it just, it's, you know, it's, it's a great group. So thanks for that. And then, like I said, I really wanted to, you know, one of the things about honorable profession is, you know, getting to hear people's stories about how they chose a life in public service. And so I'd love to kind of find out from you about, you know, how you ended up where you are and whether this was something you always aspired to. And I, I don't think it it is actually at the beginning. This is that you knew that this was what you wanted to do, although you always had an interest, I think. But tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what you got you into politics in the first place. Yeah. I think the political bug that bit me was my best friend growing up was Kevin Jolivet. And his dad ran for mayor of our hometown, Hamilton, Ohio. So he would take Kevin and I door knocking with him. I would trail him around with a bag of chicka sticks and uh, drop those off in the mailboxes and hand them to voters as he was talking to them. He was successful and he invited Kevin and I to sit in the back row of the city hall chambers and he recognized us when he got sworn in. So that moment has sort of been like burned uh, into my uh, hippocampus. And so how old were you? Oh, I think I was probably eight, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I think, you know, that combined with the love of the West Wing uh, <laughs> caused me to move out to D.C. In, in 2009 and have been there ever since. So. Yeah. And did you know that Congress was kind of your calling or, yeah, that's struck you? Yeah, for whatever reason, I just like I wanted to work in the Congress. I had no connections in D.C., didn't know anybody out here. Somehow stumbled upon actually a Republican who graduated from WashU. And she said, my boyfriend works for this congressman from Missouri named Ike Skelton. And I bet I could get you an internship. And so I took the internship. Guy was 82 years old. And my main job, you know, Facebook and Twitter were like just starting. And so I put this 82-year-old member of Congress on Twitter and on Facebook. And he just, his like mind was blown that that was a thing and that he was able to communicate with his constituents like that. So yes, that's how I got my my start in politics. So cool. And what do you like about so it's you're a little bit different than a lot of people who work on the Hill who either work for you know, who work for a specific member, you have a really unique job and you're running this coalition of 100 members, like, what's that like? And kind of what do you like about that opportunity? 
It's a fabulous job. The job I had previous to this was I was a chief of staff for Congressman David Trone from Maryland. And when you're a chief of staff, you're sort of you have a little fiefdom and you've got a member of Congress that you can work with and advance their agenda. When you have a job like this, which, as you said, is totally unique, uh, totally special, allows you the opportunity to work across member offices to advance a larger agenda, which is is super special. When we were working on some of the big bills last year from the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the Inflation Reduction Act, we were able to marshal the weight of the coalition to drive the debate and get those bills done. I mean, there's nothing like it in the world. The other thing that's super special is it really makes you feel like you're making an impact in different member offices. So, you know, I know when someone is looking for help in moving one of their bills that I can be helpful. I know when someone is looking for a new chief of staff or uh, legislative director that I can, you know, find them a couple candidates that will make them successful. And so that's a really gratifying part of the job. So much of the work in Congress is you're working on long-term stuff that, you know, you may not see that come to fruition until long after you're gone from the institution. But a job like this really makes you feel like you can make an impact in the short term, which is nice. Well, Andy, thanks so much for coming today. It was so fun to talk to you. And I just want to underscore again how much New Deal appreciates the partnership with the New Dems. You know, I feel like we are philosophically aligned in this pursuit of solving problems and getting things done and delivering for the American people. And it's just been a really, honestly, for listeners, like a huge bright spot of my work at New Deal to be able to partner with New Dems and to partner with you specifically. So thank you for that in the big picture. And thanks for today, too. Thank you so much. The New Deal, as you know, is so special to me. I always tell people there, New Deal is the New Dem sister organization, and we work together in so many different ways. Not to mention so many of the New Dealers, um, maybe some who are listening today, are going to run for higher office, You know, hopefully run for the Congress. And so we'll expand our alumni network of New Dems and New Dealers. But thanks for having me on. This is super fun. And we love the New Deal and we love the New Dems. So thanks. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.